Lord, we rejoice that you are king of creation, that you are ruler of this world, and that you have called us to be your sons and your daughters. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be at a gathering such as this. We thank you for the privilege of hearing your work around the world, of hearing how you are bringing people to yourself, of hearing how you are using your church to spread your truth, to spread your compassion, to spread your healing, Lord. Lord, I just ask that right now you fill uh, this room, you fill this place with your Holy Spirit, you guide and lead us as we uh, talk about tuberculosis, as we talk about Afghanistan, and as we talk about the work that you are doing in a, a country like Afghanistan. Lord, we praise you. I thank you for each person here, and I just ask you to be with us uh, as we walk through this session. In the name of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, just so I have some idea, um, how many students here? Okay, great. How many folks out in practice, medical practice, nursing, uh, physicians somewhere? Okay. How many people who have been overseas for five years or greater? Okay. How many people have been overseas on short-term trips? Okay, good. I'm going to assume that you're in this room for a couple of reasons, either some interest in Afghanistan, some interest in tuberculosis, um, or some combination thereof, or some interest in hearing about the Lord's work, hearing about missions work in Afghanistan. First, a confession. I'm not Brad Fryer. I'm Brent Freiling. And so my name is uh, different in the book. Part of the reason for that is just we have so much internet, so many internet issues in a country like Afghanistan. Um, that's why I'm Brad Fryer. I will say that little paragraph wasn't written by me either. So if you find a Brad Fryer who wrote that paragraph in the book, let me know, because that's not the stuff that I'm going to talk about today. Um, it was a very good paragraph, but I had to, when I got it, I had to sit and think, what does that actually mean? Um, what I am going to talk about today, and what this whole thing in some ways, and I, I hope something you're already experiencing from the conference is as we hear these tremendous speakers that have been speaking to us in a plenary session and the different workshops, uh, we're hearing people's testimony. We're hearing what God has called people to do, whether here in inner city Philadelphia or in places like Afghanistan or North Africa. So I hope to be able to throughout this share a little bit of uh, my testimony, not because it's that great, but I'm just I'm so thankful that I'm a son of God, and I'm so. One of the speakers said in a plenary session, um, to she lay awake at night, just amazed that God had chosen to use her, and I'm so thankful that I've had that experience of thinking, God, you have allowed me to be involved with this effort, with this work at this time, and I'm just incredibly thankful. So I hope throughout this I'll be sharing my testimony. <laughs> I want to share about how we ended up in Afghanistan. Uh, my wife and I, my family, uh, just gotten, end of 2008, just came back from about four or five years of work in Afghanistan. So I hope to share how we ended up there. I hope to share how we ended up working with tuberculosis. Uh, there's a lot of different medical needs in Afghanistan and other places. And I hope to give you a vision uh, for why tuberculosis. And also touch on the issue of, uh, as you have been overseas, as you work with different mission organizations, uh, the healthy tension of how much medical work I do, how much evangelistic work I do, where does health and the gospel, where, how do those things wash out in your practice and in what you're doing every day. So I hope to be, not answer that for you, uh, but to at least tell you how our team in Afghanistan did that and how we, we think the Lord um, blessed that. Hope to talk a little bit about Afghanistan throughout the presentation, some of the public health needs, particularly the tuberculosis situation. 
And I want to share a little bit about what our team did as far as creating or, or working with the Ministry of Public Health to create uh, directly observed treatment programs in Afghanistan. So many of you may know one of the worldwide efforts uh, for curing tuberculosis is DOT, directly observed treatment, and that's what we had a chance to work with. I also feel a little bit obligated to take a look at tuberculosis a little more globally with some broad strokes because I think this is the only talk dealing with tuberculosis, and for a missions conference, tuberculosis really has to be on everyone's radar. It's probably one of the largest, it's for sure one of the largest infectious disease problems around the world, but any country in the 1040 window that anyone may be thinking about going to has a large tuberculosis presence, and if not, it's a big big problem. So in Afghanistan, it was the number two public health problem. Uh, maternal and infant mortality being number one. So I think it's reasonable as a group we at least have tuberculosis on our radar if we're thinking about um, working overseas, particularly in the 1040 window. And that last category I called fringe benefits. Uh, it probably doesn't do um, – this is re- it's really more than fringe benefits. I want to just end with what we saw God do in Afghanistan. So we were there – as far as the government was concerned, we were there to do tuberculosis work. Um, but we got to do even better, and we got to see God um, work there as well. So I want to end talking about some of those things. We, my wife and I, uh, probably, I remember in seventh grade, desiring to be a doctor and desiring to be a doctor overseas, uh, ended up being called to family medicine, uh, did training in residency in Pennsylvania, and then had a National Health Service Corps scholarship in order to try to keep my debt low so that we could get overseas, Worked for three years out on the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona, and we were planning to go. We'd been to two Urbana conferences in uh, Urbana, Illinois, and had sort of decided that there was no way we could go to another Urbana conference and had not and not gone overseas. We thought that really wouldn't be doing Urbana justice. So after we were had been working in Arizona, we were planning to head overseas. Found that we didn't have a church uh, active family in Arizona, so ended up moving back to Memphis, found a group called Christ Community Health Services that uh, we went to work with in Memphis. We went there because they worked in an underserved population, but we also went there to be with other families that were also thinking about going overseas, thinking about going to the 1040 window. In our context of work there in uh, Memphis, one day my boss, Rick Donnelly, came to me and said, so, do you want to go on a trip? And he had asked uh, someone else to go, wasn't able to go, so I was sort of his second choice, and I said, sure, where is it? And he said, Afghanistan. And we ended up taking a two-week trip uh, to meet missionaries in Afghanistan that were already in country, that were already working with a non-government organization in country, and see if there's any way that our practice at Christ Community Health Services could help that, could contribute, could partner with those missionaries that were in country. And that was the context of, for our family, our direct call. There was a team there in Herat, which is the largest western city of Afghanistan, that said, we've been asked by the Ministry of Public Health to run a tuberculosis control project, and we don't have any medical people. In fact, at that time, the team was uh, a 70-year-old man and a 72-year-old woman who had gone there to start a team, and they were the only ones on the ground, and they were being asked to start this tuberculosis project. So they said, if you come back and do this, this would be great. Um, We went back to our practice at Christ Community and said, we think this is uh, our call. We think we're called to go to Afghanistan. This picture is a a group from Christ Community that's actually in Chakchuran, which is right in in the middle of Afghanistan. Um, 
we went back to Christ Community and uh, said, we feel like we're called to Afghanistan. Could you support this? Fully expecting them to say, no, you just came to work for us. You've only been working for a year and a half. And instead they said, no, we want you to go. This is part of what we feel is valuable. You should go to Afghanistan. So I think we went to Afghanistan for that two-week trip in November of 2003, and then we were back on ground in country February of um, 2004. It is part of what I like to talk about at meetings like this because the ethos, the culture of our practice at Christ Community is such that we really want our providers to be heading overseas. And I can tell you that's not an easy thing administration-wise. Like, I think the reason this is actually my first conference I've been to, because I think all the other conferences I've been on call. So when you have a certain number of physicians in a practice, a certain number of people, to be constantly sending your folks overseas is not an easy thing to do. Um, But they did that, and despite losing a physician, said, we want you and your wife to go overseas. I have this picture up because I get to show you my beautiful wife, Jody, who's in this picture. But it also reminds me to talk about the culture that is Christ Community that allowed us to be supported, that allowed us to go to Afghanistan. And there's, I'm sure many of you come from different offices, different cultures that have allowed you to do the same thing. Um, in the time that we were in Afghanistan, the other couple on the far end, the weavers there, went to India and uh, lived three years in India as medical missionaries. The other couple in the middle there, he's an architect. He also went to India. So even as we were gone in Afghanistan, that community in Memphis that we were from was sending other folks overseas, and this is just us all meeting in Calcutta and getting caught up on uh, each other's lives. The other thing, I'm not a theologian. I can't tell you too much about call, but the best way I can describe the Lord calling us to Afghanistan is when I came back from that trip, I was absolutely sure that if we didn't go back to Afghanistan as a family, that would have been disobedience for us. And that's the way I describe our call. If you know, if you don't do something, that's disobedience. You pretty much can be comfortable saying God's called you to do this thing. The other thing I would say, was it was both Jody and I. Jody was probably more excited about going to Afghanistan than I was. I think that was an important part of our work there. Some just um, broad brushstrokes about Afghanistan. It's a population of almost 30 million people. It remains, despite literally billions of dollars over the last six years, seven years, it remains one of the poorest nations in the world. Uh, War contributes to this. Famine contributes to this. And over the last two years, increasingly so, corruption uh, contributes to this. The average life expectancy is 46 years. Literacy rate of about 36%, which has implications for folks who go there wanting to share the gospel. It has implications for evangelism. There's a lot of really good storying and sharing the gospel through stories uh, going on in Afghanistan because so much of the the population is not literate. And as we left, we left Afghanistan at the end of 2008. A lot of progress had been made in the areas of development, especially in the areas of health care, but a lot of that was being threatened by a a deterioration of security, and that has stayed about level um, in the year that we've been gone. Have you, who's been to Afghanistan? Well, then I should talk about this. Um, it's, Afghanistan is an interesting place because you hear so much about it in the news, but it is really one of the most hospitable uh, cultures in the world. It's, it's, I always think the, the term closed countries is an interesting one because so many of these countries that as a church we consider closed or as Westerners we consider closed once you get, and if you've been to any other of these countries, once you get there, the doors to homes are so open to you. And that, this is true in Afghanistan. Hospitality is a 
it's really part of their religion. It's part of their religious background. So hospitality is practiced in Afghanistan like I've not seen it practiced anyplace else in the world. So much so I could work, walk down the street of our city, Herat, and literally be asked for dinner to someone's house and have that be a sincere invitation. So I, thinking of it as a closed country seems ironic to me because it, I felt like I had more opportunity to share the gospel there than I often do here in the States. It's also a very religious culture, so talking about God, people would ask me about God. People would ask me about Christianity. So when you go there as Westerners, you just have all these opportunities through the hospitality, through it being a religious culture, to share about the Lord, to share your Savior. There are many different people groups uh, in Afghanistan. The main people groups having distinct culture, distinct language, are the Tajik, the Pashtu, and the Hazara. And there's a lot of, probably about 26 different smaller people groups. Our team was actually working, uh, trying to get to a people group called the IMOC, which is a, a group of people in central Afghanistan. It is 99% Muslim, and probably a majority of that Muslim, maybe 60% Sunni and 40% Shia. The minority Islam in Afghanistan is Shia. So sometimes you'll hear about the Hazara as being the most persecuted people group in Afghanistan. They're Shia, and that's one of the reasons they end up being a little more persecuted than other people groups. And one of the stories I tell about hospitality in Afghanistan was we, uh, one day there was a uprising in Herat because the governor had changed, and there was a lot of military uh, activity that was going on, and a couple of people decided to try to show the West that they couldn't take over Afghanistan. So we essentially had an uprising, and they began burning uh, any non-government organization buildings in town that were Western. So there was just a lot of sort of helicopter gunships going overhead. There was a lot of gunfire. There were missiles going back and forth. And in the middle of this, we were our team was all staying in our office, sort of in the basement, lying on the ground. And our staff kept on coming to us and saying, it's safe, it's safe. And at one point, the staff came in and said, okay, it's not safe. We need to move. So they, they got us up. They actually put people in burkas to take us across the street, and we went to the house of our office manager at that time. And this to me is just a picture of hospitality in Afghanistan. They brought us into their homes, put us down on the ground, and sort of while gunfire is going off, while missiles are going off, the wife comes in and serves everyone tea, puts tea down in front of you, and after she had served us tea, just began to pray, and just began to pray for us, pray for our safety. And that to me is a, that's Afghanistan. Like that, that whole experience is the hospitality, the instability, um, just a tremendously hospitable culture. I was actually preparing for this last week, and I didn't know this. We were on the team. Uh, that, again, our, our desire was to reach this people group called the IMOC with the gospel. And I went to preparing for this last week. I went to the Joshua Project, and lo and behold, the IMOC was actually the number one unreached people group in the world, which was new to me as of last week. So it was one of these things I thought, wow, I got to work with a team that was trying to reach the number one unreached people group in the world. But again, right in the center of 1040 window there. So those are the reasons we ended up in Afghanistan. Uh, we really wanted to be in the 1040 window. We really wanted to partner with folks on the ground who knew what they were doing as far as uh, the gospel, as far as witness. But why tuberculosis? For those of you in medicine, this is a, a scanning electron micrograph of a TB bacilli. And uh, when we, one of the highlights of my work with tuberculosis in Afghanistan was working with doctors from the Ministry of Public Health, 
And at one point we did a presentation where I would run the PowerPoint, he would do the presentation in Dari, and we sort of worked as a team presenting this to uh, a group of doctors from around Afghanistan in Kabul talking about tuberculosis and educating them regarding tuberculosis. But one of the things that came out, he was actually saying that this was a tuberculosis bacilli, and that's the mouth, and that's where the bacilli eats food. And that is, of course, not true. This is a a bacilli that has been treated with drugs and is dying, and that's why the, the outer coat is broken. For any of you that are interested in doing reading specifically about tuberculosis, Paul Farmer is a, a great source of reading uh, regarding tuberculosis, and he's the one who, who has this picture. These slides are, and I, I want to include these and sort of give credit. Essentially, the reason we chose tuberculosis, the Ministry of Health asked us, but we had a lot of smarter people than I am, many here at this conference who have lectured years before that had shared a lot about tuberculosis. And these slides are from a presentation that Claudette Powell has done at this conference several times uh, regarding tuberculosis. Uh, It needs to be on our radar as uh, folks who are working different places around the world. One-third of the world's population is infected with TB. 5,000 people a day die of tuberculosis. When you look at women, TB kills more young women than any other disease and more than 100,000 children die of of TB every year. So it's a huge disease burden around the world. Of the 9 million people, I often get questions when I'm talking at churches. Uh, People say, "What? we don't hear that much about TB here in the States. It's mostly because of the 9 million people who get TB every year, 95% of them live in places like Afghanistan. Of the 2 million people who die of tuberculosis, 98% of those people live in the developing world. When you look through this list, who are the patients most likely to get tuberculosis? They're the poor, the marginalized, people who are homeless, uh, people who are in prison, people who don't have family support structures, the very young, the very old, people who have abused drugs, uh, people who don't have proper nutrition, people with HIV AIDS, uh, the, the refugee, and when you look through this list, when you look through the Bible, these are sort of the who's who of Scripture. These are the people that God calls the church to reach out with compassion to. So if we're planning on doing that, tuberculosis uh, needs to be in the picture as well. When we went to Afghanistan, this was the uh, slide that we were working with as far as how much, Afghan- how much tuberculosis is in Afghanistan. And I sort of love this slide because... You, know, you, you picture the 1040 window there. That dark area, which is Afghanistan, is smack dab in the middle of, of the 1040 window. So, again, the, the two things, thinking about spiritually unreached parts of the world and places that had high tuberculosis incidence rates, this put us right in Afghanistan. The dark countries in this slide have higher than 300 per 100,000 uh, incidence rate of tuberculosis. So when we went, tuberculosis figures are always two years behind, so when we went and 2003, 2004, this was the incidence rate. The incidence rate in Afghanistan was thought to be 333 per 100,000. Um, that was the highest incidence rate of any country in the world at that time that didn't also have HIV AIDS. So you see a lot of dark countries in Africa, and all those countries also have HIV AIDS as well. But to date, Afghanistan has not had significant HIV AIDS problem. And just, just a word here on the, this two-track two idea. Um, and I was trying to set it up in talking about Afghanistan and talking about tuberculosis. In our team, working in Afghanistan, 
um, we really held in healthy tension both the, the medical and the spiritual. And we actually had different people playing different roles. So when I went to a team, I really went as a technical consultant to really try to allow them to do quality tuberculosis work. So my thing, the thing I always talk about, was the TB work. I had other team members that had seminary backgrounds, that were great linguists, that had a, a passion for evangelism that were able to share. And we held those things as teamwork, and we held those in contention. And using both those things together, we hope we're able to get somewhere. We, we hope we're able to um, help the public health of Afghanistan, make tuberculosis less while sharing the gospel, while sharing Jesus Christ. And as we looked at this as a team, it, we were all aware of that. So we were all aware that we wanted to keep our train running along these two tracks of good public health projects and sharing the gospel with those that we were allowed and able to have a relationship with. Okay, what's the current state of tuberculosis work in Afghanistan? I hope to maybe get through these and, and have some time for questions, too, so we can talk about issues that you might be thinking about. Um, this next set of slides is from the World Health Organization. These will, will be about Afghanistan, but will also be about tuberculosis in the worldwide uh, context as well. Again, this is the 2009 report, but all these numbers are from 2007 statistics. First, looking at what countries are, where is the largest TB burden? And I, the darker red-orange areas there are greater than a million cases uh, of tuberculosis. So if you're working or planning to work in India, China, you have a huge uh, amount of tuberculosis there. Interestingly, India has actually made some fairly significant uh, progress towards, uh, towards fighting tuberculosis, uh, but still just because the population has quite a large TB burden. Uh, you can see Afghanistan has a little less in total numbers, but also has a little bit less population than, than India and China. Looking at TB incidence rates, again, the, the countries largely in Africa still have a greater than 300 per 100,000 incidence rate of tuberculosis. You notice that in 2007, uh, Afghanistan has dropped to somewhere between 100 and 299 per 100,000. I think the 2007 incidence rate for Afghanistan was about 168 per 100,000. So that is actually an improvement over the four or five years we were there. When we went, it was estimated to be about 333, so almost half the incidence rate in those um, three or four years we were there. And that really does, as if any of you have worked in these countries, you know statistics are a little bit of a dangerous thing, and uh, sometimes ministries of public health can get statistics to say exactly what they want so they get more funding. Um, but this really, there's some realness there where there really was TB incidents going down in the time that we were, we were there in country. Just looking, uh, if you have any exposure to tuberculosis, uh, drug-resistant, multiple drug-resistant TB is on everyone's radar. Again, just because of numbers, China and India uh, on the right-hand side there are uh, a lot higher than other countries. Afghanistan very low, but this I really put this slide in so I could talk about the fact that even when we left in 2008, Afghanistan really did not have the ability to do TB cultures. So any multiple drug-resistant disease that was even thought to be in Afghanistan was just because people didn't get better on the medicines uh, that we had them on. So the ability to know what, whether TB really was susceptible to the medicines you were using was not available in Afghanistan, and that's something that, that has to change in the future. Again, if you're familiar with tuberculosis, this is a very uh, 
fundamental slide to tuberculosis work. Any tuberculosis project that someone is going to use overseas, you're shooting for a 70% detection rate and an 85% cure rate. So when you set up your tuberculosis project, you want to shoot for finding 70% of the patients that you would expect to find in your catchment area, in your population, and curing 85% of those patients. And this is just a slide showing that and where, where they play out. As if anyone's working in Nauru, Nauru's doing like the best job in the whole world. So if anyone here is from Nauru, good job on TB. It's really good. Um, Afghanistan actually has fallen below. Uh, last several years, it's been above that 85% uh, cure rate or 85% treatment success rate. And uh, just last year, actually fell below that. That's probably more the reality catching up with the statistics. So we probably have not been above that. Um, the whole time we've been working, but it's probably people are getting better at reporting what's actually happening. There's always been a need to increase case detection in Afghanistan. That's one of the reasons we ended up doing this community-based DOT program. This is an interesting slide to talk about HIV and TB. Uh, In Afghanistan, there was... uh, time I was there, we did, there was another group that did a survey of about 1,200 patients and only found two cases of HIV. And both those cases had risk factors for reasons that they should have HIV. So in this slide, Afghanistan does not have a high HIV prevalence, but everyone working with TB in Afghanistan realizes that if HIV is or has been introduced, which is probably a matter of time that it will be, it's going to make the TB problem in Afghanistan even worse. And this is just something that the, the world community, the co- learning how to test all TB patients for HIV, uh, learning how to then treat the world community is doing a better job at that because we're slowly learning we, we can't deal with these problems in isolation. We really have to deal with these problems together. Now, this is a, a little bit of an ironic slide in that these are countries, the countries in dark, the dark orange, are actually countries that have reported the extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis. So this is tuberculosis that will not respond to even our second and third-line agents. The thing that's ironic about this slide is all those countries that are have reported it are really developed nations. And what this shows is that those countries can do the cultures. Those countries can find it out. So I know there's extremely drug-resistant tuberculosis in Afghanistan, but it's not reported because the infrastructure is not developed in order to do the cultures at all. You can see Iran uh, has actually reported extremely drug-resistant uh, tuberculosis, and there's a l- large portion of Iran right on the Afghan border, and much of Iran's TB problem actually comes from Afghanistan, actually comes from refugees and other people coming over from Afghanistan. So if Ar- Iran has reported extremely drug-resistant TB, for sure that extremely drug-resistant TB is in Afghanistan too. We just don't have the ability to, to find it out. I put this sort of confusing, busy slide in to, I didn't expect to go to Afghanistan to think about money or to think about funding projects, but a very real part, and I see a couple of the other talks even go into this in depth, a very real part of medical missions work is utilization of resources and how you get projects funded and who's paying for projects. And I put this in just to say that uh, Politically and economically, TB work in Afghanistan was a huge open door to us. One, because it was such need, um, but part of that need was because there just weren't funders there to do the work. So 
If you look in that upper uh, left-hand corner, you can see the dark line is the NTP budget. So that's what Afghanistan thought was needed to do their TB work. And the orange line is actually the available funding. That's not what you want. You don't want your country to look like that with TB funding. But that was the situation in Afghanistan. And that really opened doors for us because the government was very willing to work with any organization that uh, was willing to was willing to help with TB. Would you define the yellow and the orange line in case I can't read it? Yeah. The dark, the dark line is NTB budget. So that's what they need to do their tuberculosis work. The orange line is actually the funding they have. So you can see the difference between that's the two. The WHO funding or who's measure? It's, I guess, slide that answers that question. This next one. Um, when you look at uh, partially asked answering this question. When you look at the national tuberculosis budgets by line item, and this actually looks at how it's spent, then we're going to look at who the funders are. Um, you look down, the third country down there is Afghanistan, and you can see that most of Thailand, Bangladesh, Afghanistan's budget is being used on DOTS, directly observed treatment. For those of you not familiar with DOTS, DOTS is in order to cure tuberculosis, you need to take anywhere from up to five medicines for up to nine months. And I can't do that. Most people can't do that. So DOTS is directly observed treatment, taking the medicine to the patients every day, watching them take it, or some schedule, and then watching them take it. So a large portion of Afghanistan's TB budget is being uh, spent in DOTS. And then you can see other, like South Africa, which is the one on the very bottom, you can see a much, much larger portion of their budget, appropriately so, is being spent on multiple drug-resistant TB. Now, this is, answers your question. The funders in Afghanistan, the bottom line, is Afghanistan. The dark orange is grants excluding global fund. Again, folks working in the TB realm, global fund is a large donor worldwide for tuberculosis work. And a lot of countries have a, a big part of their budget, which is global fund. The light orange for Afghanistan is global fund. The orange line is grants from other sources, which actually is partially me working on a computer for our NGO. And then the other line is government. So it's also a little interesting looking at more developed nations, Thailand, Brazil, have a much higher government proportion um, and a much less external reliance proportion. And this is, when you do work in Afghanistan, it's a problem. There's a, there's a large reliance on foreign resources coming in, and it, it doesn't always work out. And I think probably one of the reasons, I think 2007 was the year this happened, because of one of their global fund applications not going well, they actually were denied any global fund money. So I think that was one of the reasons for one of the years that we were there, they actually had a big um, deficit because they actually didn't get the, the global fund money either. This year they did. Okay, so what specifically is community-based out? What specifically is the, the program we were involved with and we were working with? There are certain places that community-based dot, probably urban Memphis wouldn't be one of them, but there are certain places in the world that a community-based dot program uh, seems like it would work particularly well. Uh, Afghanistan had a large part of the population that was very rurally based, so not located around any cities, not located around any health clinics at all. So many tuberculosis patients would have to work, walk a day or two just to get to a health center that had a nurse at it that could give the medicines. They had poverty as a barrier. They had instability as a barrier. In the winter times, in the mountains we were work, walk, working in, 
roads were just closed. So there's a lot of barriers to traditional care. There's a lot of barriers to the patient coming to the office to get their medicines. Something that's very strong in Afghanistan is families and communities. I heard, uh, I was in a meeting where people talked about the 1040 window and countries that are being relationally developed. And I like that, like the idea that these cultures, uh, we call them developing nations, but they have, there's aspects of these cultures that have developed very strong and relations and family connections are one of them. So Afghanistan is a relationally developed nation. They have very strong social networks. There was a significant need to increase case finding. So one of the things we did with our community-based dot workers, when we took a worker, put them in a community, and had them watch patients take their medicines, we trained that dot worker, that directly observed treatment person, to find new cases. So we went through uh, the, the things that were signs and symptoms of tuberculosis, and we would try to train those dot workers to refer patients into the center to be diagnosed with tuberculosis. So we were, one of our desires was to significantly increase case finding. And we had some, um, there's, in Afghanistan, there's something called the Basic Package of Health Services, which is the international and the local government's uh, effort at developing a health care plan, de developing a health care strategy for the entire country. So there were, sometimes in, in, on paper more than in reality, but there were community health workers that were already being trained to deal with problems other than tuberculosis. So many times we were able to use these already trained community health workers to be our... Uh, community dot workers as well. When we were setting up our dot program, I'm family practice by background, was going over largely into a public health context, so I wanted to make sure I wasn't making any large mistakes. Uh, we went to the literature and said, what is the best kind of dot program? We don't want to use resources for something that's not a good thing to do. And this is a, a consensus statement by uh, Dr. Chalk, who works out, or at this time worked out of Hopkins, it just says uh, that essentially uh, treatment completion rates for pulmonary TB are most likely to exceed 90% uh, when the treatment is based on a patient-centered approach using directly, directly observed therapy with multiple enablers and enhancers. In a place like Afghanistan, you want to be careful that your projects are sustainable, that you, if you leave, things just don't fall apart. So using things to get people to take their TB medicines, you always have to sort of think before you go down this road. But this is just simply saying if you want, if the only thing you're doing, you really want to make sure that there's a 90% completion rate, then the more you do for the patient, the better. And this is another, um, by Dr. Chalk as well, another study looking at 27 different studies and their best outcomes or the uh, highest completion rates were done with enhanced DOT. And what those three different levels are, the bottom level there is you just give patient medicine, tell them to take it. The next level up is modified DOT, so maybe you check on the patient once a month. Next level up is maybe have the patient come in every two days. And then the top level, that 90% treatment success rate, is you, in an American context, you give them taxi cab vouchers, you give them everything they need in order to get into the clinic, you have someone visiting their house, you just try to provide everything you can for, for these patients. Okay, so in, we uh, went in 2004. Uh, by the end of 2008, we started with a community-based DOT program. We worked with the Ministry of Public Health, and our first project was in a place called Kushrabat Sengi, which was just north of Herat. We started with a comprehensive health center and had about 40 patients in the program. For every patient that was diagnosed with tuberculosis, we would go out, our team would go out to the village, 
would visit with that patient, would talk to the village elders, would have a chance to uh, have the village select a community-based dot worker, and then we would assign that dot worker to go to that patient's house every day and give them their medicines. We did give, right or wrong, we, we did decide to give an incentive to that community-based dot worker. So for doing that direct observed treatment, that dot worker would get a bag of rice a month to do that. We, how, are you, how are you detecting it? The, it's a good, good question. The um, tuberculosis detection or how you make a diagnosis of tuberculosis in Afghanistan is mere microscopy. So, Acid fast mm-hmm. yeah. every, every patient that, to get into this program, every patient would need to get to the clinic. So there would need to be an initial visit at the clinic. The level of the health system that we're working with is this level called the Comprehensive Health Center, which is before you get to district hospital, but above your community health center. It's called Comprehensive Health Center. In Afghanistan, the Comprehensive Health Centers should be staffed by at least one physician, a nurse, and a lab person. So that Comprehensive Health Center should have a microscopist. So we'd have the patient come in. For those of you who haven't dealt with tuberculosis before, the main kind of tuberculosis we were thinking about was pulmonary tuberculosis, because that's the one that is spread. That's the one that's going to kill people longer term we'd have the patient cough and cough up sputum and put this smear on the microscopy, put some dye on it, acid fast bacilli stain, and look at it and see whether they had tuberculosis. So even just in doing that, if any of you are TB experts here in the States, that misses a lot of patients. So that's the best we could do in Afghanistan, but it was all, all diagnosis was based on smear microscopy. There is a there was a provision that if the clinician felt very strongly that the patient had tuberculosis, but they were repeatedly light microscopy negative, then you could also get them involved in DOT as well. But you really wanted sputum smear positive. Are you using any x-rays? The, you could. There was, uh, again, we were shooting for the sputum, sputum smear positive, but if someone came in with an x-ray that was positive, the clinician could decide, even if the smear was negative, to start them on treatment. So after... Um, Three or four years. We, uh, the other reason that we were interested in this is, again, our, our team was focused on reaching the IMOC. The IMOC were a very village-based people group. So we were interested in medical projects that would take us into the villages and that would take us in an appropriate context into the villages. So this is why uh, this program worked so well for us. Again, we started with about 40 patients. By the um, end of our project, we had about 1,500 patients. As you think about, if you're going to different countries and you're going to be working, thinking about what kind of public health project you do, again, this for TB is a big thing with funding because each of those, you know, if we have about 1,500 patients, there's a certain percentage, high percentage of those that are sputum positive. A sputum positive patient will spread tuberculosis to about 10 to 15 other people in the course of the year. So dollars that we spend on curing this 1,500 people, I can say I'm indirectly helping 10,000 people, because that's 10,000 people that aren't going to get tuberculosis from those sputum positives. So it has a, there's, and when you look at the WHO statistics for directly observed treatment work, there's just a, a real, um, it's a good way to use your money. It's efficient use of money. How did you know your case detection was 90%, and how did you define a cure? This cure is fairly strictly defined according to, um, according to the national protocol. So a patient would be sputum positive. They would be put on the DOT program, come in at three months for a repeat sputum. Negative. Hopefully that's negative. They would come in at six months for another sputum, and then once they were done treatment, they would, they would get another sputum. If one of those was positive, then you'd have to, have to repeat that later on. So a cure is defined as 
two sputum positives consecutively in that, at least the next last six months of the treatment. Sputum negative smears. Correct. Sorry. No. Yep. That is uh, based on the known incidence rate of TB at that time. So you take the incidence rate of, of what was, you know, you take the incidence rate of 333 per 100,000. Right. Look at the population that you'd see, and you'd expect to detect this many patients. So, so it's uh, we, at one point in our program, using what was public health figures, we actually had a almost 120% or so detection rate. So it doesn't mean we're digging up TB. It probably means the numbers were, were a little bit off. But that's all. A, it's a mathematical. Yeah. Good question. Uh, one of the things we did which worked well for us is we were integrated working with the Ministry of Public Health. So as we uh, found these programs, they were something that the Afghan officials were doing with us, Afghan doctors were involved with. So if we did, in the insecure situation Afghanistan was, had to leave, the program would continue. One thing we found that was a little unique, and we still don't know, and if I had been a, a smarter research physician, I would like to find this out. Uh, when you look at worldwide figures of tuberculosis, usually about 60% of people who are diagnosed with tuberculosis, 50 to 60, um, sometimes even 70, are men. And in Afghanistan, it was the opposite. 70% of the patients that we were finding and diagnosing were women. We think that probably had to do something with the living conditions, um, probably had something to do with uh, the fact that they're not getting sunlight, so vitamin D we thought might be involved with it. But we were able, one of our physicians actually tried, our Afghan physicians tried writing a paper about that because that was so unique to Afghanistan. Now, the other thing I took a lot of joy in is we were able to um, utilize the resources that our team had there, of skills on our team, to try to fight tuberculosis. And this is just a Example we give, we had a guy I love who's on our team, 67-year-old guy, went to Afghanistan in order to print Bibles. Like that was what he felt called to do. Got there, was not able to print the Bibles that he thought he was going to be able to do, but had a lot of experience in the printing business. So we started thinking, well, how can we do this? Um, got a house church in Memphis that was willing to sponsor this. They gave us $5,000. This guy did three months of work creating a TB referral form that we could then give to the Ministry of Health and have them use. So very, very rural clinics would refer their patients into the city using this TB referral form and making these two big billboards. So it was, it was fun having um, one of the challenges in a place like Afghanistan is how the team is all getting involved equally with the non-government organization work and, and everyone feeling a part of the team. And this was fun to mobilize folks who didn't have a TBBR and didn't have a medical background at all in this fight against tuberculosis in Afghanistan. So we're able to, these are some things on the side we were able to do. I wanted to end with, before questions, um, wanted to end with, uh, we got to see God at work. And uh, hopefully not getting too personal, but I just, I just like to share these things because it's just amazing that God knows what he's doing. You know, we think that um, we're going to be making some of that sacrifice by going to places like Afghanistan, or we think that this is somehow going to interrupt our careers. Um, but God knows what's best, and God knows what we're doing. One of the examples I like to give of that is our, our church in Herat. We had a, you know, there's a Afghan church, which is another conversation, but the group of believers that had gathered there to share the gospel um, with Afghans uh, was probably the best, most intimate church that I could ever dream of and the, the mutual encouragement that we were to each other. And it sort of, I know there's this American ideal of you've got to find the right church and you got to, and it was funny that we sort of found that in Afghanistan and we didn't think we'd actually you know, 
find this great church in Afghanistan. Uh, Jody and I, part of our story, we went to Afghanistan. We'd been married for um, 12 years when we went to Afghanistan and had not had any kids. So we were um, not trying not to have any kids and had sort of had a workup to make sure everything was fine and everything was, and everything was fine. About seven years of marriage, had had a pregnancy that ended in a very early miscarriage. And we were sort of strange because we didn't, we thought, well, maybe this is just God's provision for us to go and work in the 1040 window and go and work in places like Afghanistan. So we weren't particularly unhappy about that. But it was part of the picture of us picking up and going to Afghanistan. So first year in Afghanistan, we got pregnant with Daniel, who's there on the right, and uh, didn't quite know what to make of that, like why God took us to Afghanistan to get pregnant. And then this is Daniel on the right. I was up in Chakcharan, which is the center of Afghanistan, sort of the capital of where the IMOC live, um, downloading an email. And it was a very, very slow email that was just sort of coming across like this. And that picture slowly came down. And that was Daniel telling me that Jody was pregnant with Isaac. Um, so for some reason, God took us to Afghanistan to bless us with, the, with these two little ones. So seeing him do that was, was pretty incredible. Um, we also got to see Afghans, the Holy Spirit, work in the lives of Afghans and draw them uh, to himself. Uh, these are just, just a couple of examples. Uh, the gentleman here on the right, we actually call him Paul. He is a gentleman that I went to Chakcharan, which is, again, where the majority of the IMOC live. Went to Chakcharan to start more tuberculosis projects. We had started outside to the north of Herat, had three districts that were working in there, ended up working in 11 districts in, in Chakcharan, and we needed a program coordinator. Um, this gentleman, Paul, had been working with one of our uh, young men that was up there at that time, learning English. And this guy, Robert, came to me and said, I think you'd make a great TB coordinator. He was a nurse by training. His current job was as a dressings change nurse in a local uh, commu- local community clinic. He was getting paid about $40 a month, so he came to work for us. The challenge with him was he, we also knew that his father was the head of sort of the secret police or the, the Afghan CIA for Chakcharan. So we knew that one of the reasons he came to our office was that we were a foreigner office in Chakcharan, and he was sent there to, to keep an eye on us. So we always had this tension with Paul that, he was a very smart, talented guy. He learned English in about a year and became fluent in English, which was very easy um, to work with. was very smart, was really able to expand the TB program quickly, but was actually very antagonistic to anything that was Christian. Um, but he was, much like our plenary session was sharing today, he was dissatisfied with Islam. He had questions about God. He had questions about sin that his religious experience, that his mullahs weren't able to answer for him. So living in you know, community context with our team there in Chakcharan, coming to visit us in Herat, he really got to be exposed to the Lord over several years. Had an episode at one point where he was sick and one of our team members was able to play, pray for him, and he felt like he was healed from that experience. Long story short, he, because of his questioning, because of his fear, because of um, the Christ that he had seen being lived around him, came to know the Lord and is now back in that city, you know, who, he, he was a guy that if we went to share, if we went thinking that we were going to have a chance to share the Lord at someone's house, just as we were about to do it, he would show up, show up at the door knocking because he was there to, to look after us and make sure that we weren't sharing the gospel. Um, and so he, he came to know the Lord and is now back in that city. A couple on the right, as far as we know, I've shared about the IMOC people group. As far as we know, this is the first in history IMOC church. Um, 
We call him Dr. Luke. He made himself known to us. We had a short-term team that had come and was doing lectures in infectious disease uh, to Chakcharan. And this guy, Dr. Luke, w- walked up to us. He's an IMAC guy. And he said, you know, I am a Protestant. And we said, what? <laughs> he says, I am a Protestant. And he was using that language because he didn't want to identify himself as a Christian anyone else around him. But he had gone to Kabul, the capital, to get some medical training, had had a vision uh, that told him he had a friend who was a Korean guy working at the embassy in Kabul. And he had a vision that told him to go talk to this Korean guy's wife and that she had something to tell him. And that is a very uncultural thing to do, a very dangerous thing to do. And he went and talked to this Korean guy's wife, and she shared the gospel with him, and, and he became a believer. And he was living up in this village, Chakchon, the only Christian that we know of um, for years. Uh, he, out of because he wanted to be a good testimony to his family, decided to go ahead and uh, marry his current wife. She was not a believer at the time, and as he was going through that decision, he said, you know, I, I know... I should, I should be marrying someone that's a Christian, but I don't know of any Christian women here in Chakron. And uh, said, I'm going to marry her and pray that she becomes a believer. And about six months after they got married, she did, did, did become a believer. So um, as far as we know, they're the first um, IMOC church that is worshiping in this area of Chakron. They, they've actually gone on gotten some additional training and are now back in Afghanistan in another location doing church planning. So they're actually sharing, sharing the gospel in Afghanistan. This is another couple. Um, we call them Lydia and Mohammed. Mohammed had been our office manager for our NGO for about 13 years. Uh, we didn't really think about him becoming a Christian because he had been exposed to so many of us for so long that we thought, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's not working on his life. Um, he met uh, Lydia, who was about 18 or so when they met. He's probably about 35. A lot of the women on our team became very good friends with Lydia. Uh, we were good friends with Mohammed. One day, uh, Jody came back to I always get a little tearful. One day, Jody came back to me in tears and said, you're not going to believe it's going to happen. You're not going to believe what happened. And uh, I thought something bad had happened. And uh, she, she went on and told me the story that I would not have believed, except it was my wife telling me, and that these were dear friends. Um, Lydia was lying in bed at night, had a dream that uh, someone in white came to her. He identified himself as Jesus, and he said he wanted to purify her. He wanted to take away her sin. And he wanted her to come to him. And she didn't know what that meant because she had not been exposed to a lot of Christians, but woke up and told Muhammad about this. And, uh, and he essentially got down on his knees and said, now I know that this God these white people have been talking about, these foreigners have been talking about, um, are, is not a God just for Westerners, but is also a God for us Afghans. And they together, without us there, they gave their lives to Christ and went on, got scripture, and began reading and began wrestling through these issues um, of Scripture. And we just saw them grow. Even, I don't want to say without discipleship, but they, reading through Scripture, were growing on their own and, and would come to us and say, well, what about this passage? And what's baptism? And what? And so, and again, the thing that was beautiful about this is that we had no question that it was God's work because God did it. You know, God, God saved them. Last time we were with them, this is Muhammad's mother, and Lydia was sharing with how she really enjoys, which is, this is a, not a cultural thing, she really enjoys taking care of the mother and loving on her because she wants the mother to know Jesus too. And she knows that in taking care of this elderly mother and caring for her physical needs, she's showing the love of Jesus and she wants this, this older woman to come to know Jesus too. Okay, I just want to end uh, reading a passage. We have some, 
some time for questions too. It's a chapter from Isaiah that uh, I think of when I think of Afghanistan, but when I was reading this the other night, um, I was struck by... I've always thought of the second part of this chapter as referring very much to Afghanistan, um, but I realized the first part of this chapter speaks to me. The first part of this chapter speaks to us uh, as well. Because when you read the first part of this chapter, it talks about those who are hungry, those who have no money, um, come to me and eat. And that, in reality, brothers and sisters, is us. Like we can't be about any of this on our own, and we need God. We need the Holy Spirit. So when, as I, just as I read through this, I think a lot of the, the first chapter being us, and then I, I think of the uh, second part of this chapter referring to places like Afghanistan. Isaiah 55 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear, come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. And then skipping down to verse 5. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that you do not know will hasten to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth, and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees will clap their fields, and all the trees sorry, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Okay, time for some questions. administrator. We did. Typically, how many patients would one administrator um, cover? We, our program is really set up geographically, so we had one administrator that was working around Herat that was in three districts, and I want to say those three districts in a year probably had about, I would guess about 300 patients. Um, and that was that was stepped geographically. Now the other dots coordinator we called him was in Chakcharan, and he had 11 districts, so he was working in a in a in a whole different district. So it was really set up geographically. I just want to break it down a little further than that. Each person that was doing the observing uh, patient contact mm-hmm. observation, 
How many would one of those typically? We probably had an, that's a very good question. We probably had an average of two. So they would start off with one patient. There were DOTS observers, so there are DOTS workers who had up to four patients. I think four patients was the maximum that we would have. Um, we did give a little, if they had more patients, we did give a little bit more incentive so they lived in the with, neighborhood where the patients were at. Correct. And what sort of support did you give to the DOTS administrator, at least to the medicine administrator, confusing terms here, uh, the local one? The, uh, the observer was the person that would get a bag of rice per month for doing the observation of the direct observation. The DOTS coordinator, which is the district yeah, person, was actually salaried. So he was actually on our staff. Like we hired him as an, as an NGO. Uh, how about the tolerance of the patients to the toxic side effects to the uh, anti-TB medicines? Uh, were you doing supplemental uh, nutrition? Uh, they would actually do it through the clinics, so they would get that through the clinics, although not, I'm not sure it was always done as aggressively as we do it here in the West, but I think they did get like B6. Would we go with it? Um, now it's actually probably even bigger than when I left. It, it, uh, part of our uh, release for the Lord saying, okay, go back to the States for a while, remember what practices like here was we had a um, PhD nurse come from Louisiana, I believe, who had sort of finished her career in nursing education and felt the Lord call her to this part of the world. So she actually came and took over as a project coordinator for me. So it's still going on. Uh, this PhD nurse is there running it and is probably better qualified to do it than, than I was. So we really sort of felt like it got to a point where it, we just handed it off to the team that we were working with and they can take it and run with it and do what they want. So it's, it's still there going. Um, it's a TB work is interesting because it doesn't go away. So you do have this commitment of how do you know when to stop or how do you know when you've put enough resources into it. But currently it's still, I think they've actually added a district since I left. So it's still up and running, run by our team. Um, probably the, for sure, if they had the funding, the Afghans that run our program would be completely capable of, of doing it if we weren't there. Um, I've heard the term DOTS plus before. Can you tell me a bit about that? Does anyone else know about that specifically? I guess no. I think it's when I think a dots plus program is when you have dots plus the ability to do um, second line agents. So adding um, you have dots, but then you can also do if someone has multiple drug resistant TB, you can also go ahead and treat them. I don't know that for sure, but I think that's. No, that's correct. And HIV drugs, that may be true. Yeah. And uh, one of the reasons I don't know that, Afghanistan doesn't have that. So, you know, in WHO literature, that is something that Afghanistan is working towards. I think the uh, round nine of Global Fund, which was, I think, just released last week or the week before, Afghanistan is getting money, and there's a, a huge amount of money in that round nine that is actually going to go into drug-resistant work and, and extending drug-resistant work. You said earlier that they don't have a laboratory for actually doing the culture or sensitivity. Are they working towards having one of those in each region or centrally at some point in the future? They are. Kabul would be the National Tuberculosis Laboratory is in Kabul. In Herat, because of our relationship with WHO and several other organizations that were there, they were actually they had built part of what would hopefully become a referral laboratory in the future there. So that is something they are working towards. Um, the, so right now, would they send a, if you had a positive smear, would they send that sputum to 
No. Yeah, so right now, positive smear, you get treated. I mean, there's, there's nothing there. Now, if you had a patient and the patient had some means and knew they weren't getting better, they might be able to go to Kabul and find there's one NGO in um, the eastern part of the country that runs some um, drug resistant, some cultural sensitivities, and uh, they might be able to get that. So every once in a while, I would see a handwritten form that was a cultural sensitivity that some lab had, or Pakistan, they sometimes would come to. We had, I had a we went up um, north and worked with another team who wanted to do TB work and trained them, and they had a patient who came to them, and the best advice we could give talking to people in the area was to go to Iran and uh, and try to get it treated in Iran. So what culture. was your basic dodge regimen? What were the drugs basic dodge? I have that in my wallet. I can tell you that. We do... Uh, yeah, I actually carry this around because I... Uh, we had... It was broken up Every country is slightly different. In Afghanistan, this is a like five-year-old piece of paper, so this is pretty good. Um, you had you had different categories of tuberculosis. So you had category one, two, and three. Um, the first category you had rifampicin, isoniazid, pyrazinamide, ethambutol, and then isoniazid and ethambutol. Uh, and there's usually a um, there's a two-month uh, area where we're doing uh, up to five drugs, and then there's the six months after that where we're doing two drugs. So in this case, it would be the isoniazid and ethambutil for those six months. Can you break it down to a two-day? Um, we didn't. Twice, twice a week after the first two months? Yeah, we didn't. We actually did. We kept that. In the time that I was there, when I left, we were still doing we were still doing daily, as daily far as I know. The yeah. whole nine, mm-hmm. But that is, I know that's something done that's in other places. Tough. Yeah. And then there's category two, category three. Um, the big difference was streptomycin. So in category two, we'd actually add streptomycin, which is injectable, and that's for folks that you might think have higher resist- possibility for higher resistance. So how do they decide which category? It's a clinical decision by the physician at the comprehensive health center, and it was based by whether, like, category one was a new sputum-positive case of tuberculosis. Category two was someone that maybe was on TB drugs before, maybe had been exposed before, was at a little bit higher risk. Have you seen that flu For TB testing or for? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that, so I don't know. Okay. I'm not, yeah. Sure. Other questions? Sorry. Um, he actually did. That was something I was saying. Um, he, within the context of Afghanistan, wrote a paper sort of to the public health about the number of women, but we were wanting to do a research paper on it and never got to do that, so we actually didn't. So it's not, that's not something in sort of published literature. What was your second question? Oh. Yeah. Um, no, but we, with the question of why women had more TB, uh, part of it could be cultural in that they're the ones caring for the sick, they're also, by the time they have their sixth child, sixth child, they're often anemic, so they might be a little more susceptible to disease. But we really thought, because there's some evidence with pneumonia, uh, that if you're vitamin D deficient, you get 
uh, you're more likely to have pneumonia and other pulmonary diseases, there's probably a good chance that that was what was going on too. And the reason we were, and maybe you can talk to me about this nutrition, but we're thinking about that because that would be then something we could add and supplement and, and do a really good study. One of my other sort of sideline things is we were having short-term teams come over, so I was always trying to think about how could we medically, in a proper way, use a short-term team coming over. And part of that I had a vision for was research, like trying to get a team come over and actually construct a study where the team would go out to a village look at a bunch of women, actually do vitamin D levels on it, you know, get the blood, get the levels, and then maybe have another team come six months later and do the second part of the study. So part of the, the desire for that research was I mean, to help Afghanistan, but also to utilize the church in, in something that would help with tuberculosis. So. Now, did you believe the uh, vitamin D deficiency was caused by sort of the, um, the cultural um, significance of the bird gut? The theory would be definitely diet, so the diet wouldn't start off well, but the diet, in addition to being indoors a lot in a sort of thick-walled, dark home and being covered every time you go out. So that would be the, that's what we would think. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thanks for coming. In the time that we were there, no. Um, uh, we really did. We really, in everything we did, we were working hand in hand with the government. So we really, if we thought of starting up a new district, we went to the head of the National Tuberculosis Program for the Western Region and said, "Could we do this?" Um, so there wasn't, but we also, it's a complicated question because we also helped fund part of his office too. So we, you know, we were working with him, but we were also saying, "Okay, because we're giving you more work, we want to fund uh, lab tech and a half because we know that our work." You know, when we do our work in the field, um, in order to get cross-checking, so there's a certain amount of the sputum positives that we send to the center in order to get checked to make sure our laboratory tech was doing a good job, so we would, would provide them with some funds to do that. So we never had opposition, but we really worked hand-in-hand -hand with them, too. Thank you guys for listening. It's a great question. I, I was surprised. I usually don't get through a talk without a question like that. Um, there is a PPD, and it's actually different overseas. It's interesting. PPD is purified protein derivative. It's a test to see if someone has been exposed to tuberculosis. We didn't use PPDs at all in Afghanistan because there's so many people that have been exposed to tuberculosis. It's sort of not worth doing the testing. Here in the West and in other countries that keep track of this stuff, if you have a positive PPD, you do get put on nine months of antibiotics to treat you. What a positive PPD means is you've been exposed to tuberculosis, and there's a certain risk that over the last next 10 to 20 years that tuberculosis will become active and you, and you get sick from it. So the first thing usually people do when talking about tuberculosis here in the West is do a PPD. And then if you're positive and your chest X-ray is negative, so usually get PPD. If that's positive, you'll then get a chest X-ray done. If your chest X-ray looks normal, you just do this nine months of antibiotic. If your chest X-ray looks like you have TB, then you're talking about being treated with tuberculosis. That being said, and this may go under one of the God category things, uh, we had uh, Nurse Lisa, who worked with us for four years, uh, completely fluent in Dari, would go with our TB team out to these villages, would sleep in the homes of these women with TB that we were treating, 
uh, would, you know, as they were falling asleep, she would be sharing about her relationship with the Lord, just intimately involved in these women's lives. Um, she was PPD negative when she came, and you know, after years of exposure of people coughing in her face, um, she, she's, a, she's a person that Dr. Kabir, who was the government person, said to me about this woman, um, said, why does she love our people more than I do? Um, and that speaks to the gospel, but also she stayed PPD negative, so she came back to the States and was negative. So just exposure doesn't necessarily do it. I don't know how long you would have to wait to get a PPD, but it's just probably months after going on a trip would be a reasonable thing to get a PPD. Okay, thanks again.